0: For blessings, we pray for peace, comfort for family, protection while we sleep. We pray for healing, for prosperity, and we pray for your mighty hand to ease. Your blessings come through raindrops What if your healing comes through tears What if a thousand sleepless nights Are what it takes to know your need What if trials of this life Are your mercies in disguise As long as we have faith To believe Cause what if your blessings Come through raindrops What if your healing Comes through tears What if a thousand Sleepless nights Are what it takes To know your need What if trials of this life. Are your mercies in disguise? When friends betray us, when darkness seems to win, we know. The pain reminds this heart that this is not come through raindrops what if your healing comes through tears what if a thousand sleepless nights are what it takes to know you're near what if my greatest disappointment or the aching of this life is a revealing of a great this world can satisfy? What if trials of this life, the rain, the storms, the hardest nights, are your mercies in disguise?
1: Good morning, everyone. I'm going to do it now, and then I'm going to move it out of the way, because I moved my hand, and one time I knocked it, and it went flying way back there somewhere. Okay, let's get to Nehemiah chapter 2. Hope you're ready to go to work, because we got to cover 2 and 3 today. Don't laugh, it can be done. I'm going to get this out, but it doesn't mean anything, I just do it for show. It doesn't work anyway. (laughs) Nehemiah chapter 2. I'm not going to read two and three because that would be really long, but we will read the first five verses of chapter two. Nehemiah chapter two, verses one to five. The word of the Lord says, and it came to pass in the month Nisan in the 20th year of Artaxerxes, the king, that wine was before him and I took up the wine and gave it unto the king. Now I had not been before time sad in his presence. Wherefore the king said unto me, Why is thy countenance sad, seeing thou art not sick? This is nothing else but sorrow of heart. Then I was very sore afraid, and said unto the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my countenance be sad when the city, the place of my father's sepulchres, lieth waste, and the gates thereof are consumed with fire? Then the king said unto me, For what dost thou make request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said unto the king, If it please the king, and if thy servant have found favor in thy sight, that thou wouldest send me unto Judah, unto the city of my father's sepulchres, that I may build it. Shall we pray? We give thanks, Heavenly Father, once again this morning for the word of God that we have before us, that we have a book that communicates your will to us, a book that is inspired, that is like no other book, not full of man's thoughts and ideas, but the very word of God. And we pray that as we look into it, you would help us to remember where it comes from, that we would have the proper attitude of reverence, and that we would be indeed open and receptive to your word for us. We pray that your Holy Spirit would do his special work in us that only He can do, that He would illuminate us, that He would open the eyes of our understanding, and that He would apply Your Word to us, to each of us, in the way that only You know that we each need it. And so we commit ourselves unto You, and we pray that this time will be for the edification of believers and for the honor and the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask it all in His blessed name. Amen. 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 When I was a child, I had a mischievous streak in me. You probably couldn't figure that out. And uh, one of the things we used to do, we liked to play tricks on the, some of the neighbor ladies. We would go ring the doorbell. Uh-huh, I hear people laughing. I pause there to see if there's any other guilty parties here along with me. We ring the doorbell, then we go hide in the shrubbery. And they come to the door and open the door and no one's there and shut the door and then we go ring the doorbell again and run away again. We thought that was great fun, you know. All right, Nick, don't you do that now. (laughs) I think Nick, he's laughing along. All right, Nick. I'm gonna keep an eye on you. Don't come ring my doorbell. It is funny, you're right, you're right. All right, you win. Christians, a lot of times, in their prayers, are like children who ring doorbells and run away before the doors open. We pray about things, and then we quit. We pray about things, and then we give up. Nehemiah prayed until he got the answer he wanted. I think about the prophet Elijah when he prayed. He went up on Mount Carmel to pray, and he prayed. He got down on his knees, he got down on his face, and he prayed, and then he sent his servant to look and see if they saw any rain. Nothing. Nothing. He got down on his knees and his face and he prayed again. Same thing, second time. He prayed again, he prayed again, he prayed again. He kept praying seven times. The number seven in the Bible is a number of something that is complete, that's perfect, that's finished. He prayed and the idea of the seven is to teach us to pray until you get the answer. Now Nehemiah in chapter 1, come back with me to chapter 1 and to verse 1. We don't know about these months because they are strange sounding names to us except Nissan here in chapter 2 sounds like a car, but it's not. They didn't have Nissan and Toyota and all of that back then. But here in chapter 1 and verse 1 it says Kisliu. That corresponds to the month of December. Okay, December. Now look at chapter 2 verse 1. It came to pass in the month Nissan. What is that? That's April. So he's praying December, January, February, March, April. Four and a half, five months he's praying. We don't know exactly how long. It just says the month and the year. Four and a half, five months he's praying. But when he finishes his prayer at the end of chapter 1, notice what he said. We didn't have time to dwell on this the other day but notice how he does it chapter 1 verse 11 he says come down to the middle of the verse where he says i pray thee thy servant prosper i pray thee thy servant this day this day today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man for i was the king's cupbearer now he's talking about this day that chapter 2 brings to us a lot of times the chapter divisions are okay for uh, general study, but sometimes they, we stop at the end of a chapter and we think that's a complete thought when really we should keep reading. And really in chapter 2 and verse 1, you have the continuation of this thought that was in chapter 1, verse 11. He's praying, he's praying. And it tells us in chapter 2, verse 1, he's been praying for four and a half, five months, he's been praying. But he came to a point in his prayer where it all came to a head. He said, okay, Lord, today... Prosper me today before the king. He knew it was time to act. He he had prayed and prayed and prayed, but sooner or later somebody had to say something to the king. And he was in that position of great advantage where he saw the king every day. So he finally says, Today, Lord, prosper me today before the king. He wasn't like those children that ring the doorbell and run off before they get the answer to prayer. Maybe there's somebody here today you've been praying about something and it's been two months, three months, four months, or maybe years. Don't quit. Don't quit. Pray till you get the answer. And you have to realize when you're praying that no is also an answer. God can answer yes, no, later. And he can give you something better than what you asked for, something different or better than what you asked for. Those are all answers to prayer. But pray until you get an answer. And this is the answer that Nehemiah got. Chapter 2 and verse 1, he tells us what the 20th year was. You saw that back in chapter 1. In verse 1, it said, in the 20th year. And when I first read that, I remember thinking, the 20th year of what? Whose 20th year is uh, Nehemiah 20 years old? Or what is the deal here? So what did I tell you last Wednesday? When you come to things you don't understand in the Bible, keep reading, keep reading, keep reading. And you come down here to chapter 2 and verse 1, and it says, in the 20th year of Artaxerxes. Okay, now we understand. He had a reign that was 40 years long. And this is the 20, this is the midway point of the reign of this king. And so now we know where this fits in history. This is going to be very important a few verses down. Okay, verses 1 to 8 of chapter 2 are answered prayer. That's what we're talking about here to begin with. It's a reminder to us to pray till we get the answer because we're going to see how Nehemiah got his answer here. The king gives him two questions here in these verses, 1 to 8. Two questions. The first question is in verses 1 to 3. The first question. Why are you sad? Now, that may not sound like much to us, but it was forbidden for the cupbearer to be sad in the presence of the king. The king watched the cupbearer all the time because the cupbearer is his filter. All the food and drink that goes to the king passes through the cupbearer. He's the filter, so the king doesn't get poisoned, so he doesn't get assassinated. So the king's got his eye on the cupbearer all the time. He figures maybe he can figure out if something is happening, maybe he can see it in the cupbearer. You have never been sad in my presence before, he tells him. Verse 1, the end of the verse. I had not been before time sad in his presence. And the king said, what is this? This is sadness. This is sorrow of heart. And why does Nehemiah say he was afraid? Well, because just for that, he could be hauled off and executed. So in one sense you could say he took his life in his own hands. But he's letting his feelings come out. He's not doing theater. He's been sad and private ever since chapter 1. When he heard the conditions of the people in his city, Jerusalem, when he heard about the walls broken down still after all those years, decades and decades have gone by, nobody's built the walls, nobody's restored the gates, and the people are in great reproach. Everybody around them hates them and laughs at them and ridicules them. Which means probably that other cities had been rebuilt, but not Jerusalem. And he's concerned. He sat down. What did he do in chapter 1? He sat down. He wept before the Lord. He fasted and he prayed. So he is sad and he has been sad for all of this time. But he's been controlling it in the presence of the king because the king doesn't like to see sad faces. It gives him indigestion. And so today he lets it out. He says, Okay, I'm not gonna hide it any longer. And the king noticed it right away, and because this is the man he knows closest, besides the people in his own family, the man who's with him every day. And he says, What is this? Sorrow of heart. I was very afraid. And he says, let the king live forever, verse 3. Why shouldn't I be sad? And he tells him what his problem is. I'm not sad because this is a plot on your life and an attempt on your life. Nothing is happening to you. Let the king live forever. My problem is what's happening in Jerusalem. My problem is not me, Nehemiah said. He's not sad for himself. This is not self-pity, which is the only kind of sadness a lot of people know. We live in a selfish society where people only think about themselves. They're sad for themselves. They have more emotion about themselves and more compassion for themselves than they do for anybody or anything else. And it's a fulfillment of what Paul told us in 2 Timothy about the last days. He said in chapter 3, in verse 1 of 2 Timothy, that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men will be lovers of their own selves. And today we're even taught that. 30 years ago, 40 years ago, we were taught that self-love was a sin to be confessed and repented of. Today, we're taught that it's a virtue and that you need it, and that the reason those people are in prison and that the reason there are all these uh, difficulties in families and in society is because people don't love themselves enough. Can I just tell you frankly, that's a bunch of baloney. Nehemiah, what he has here is not self-pity. He's concerned about the city. He's concerned about the people of God and the testimony of the people of God. And it bothers him that those walls are still down and those gates are not up and he's not willing to just brush it off and keep living the way he had been living there and say, well, how do we do? We say, it's not my problem. Or we just say, oh, well, I'll pray for you but that's the limit of our participation. And sometimes I think we're guilty of saying, I'll pray for you, and then we don't even do that. But he'd been praying all of this time, and he'd been sad all of this time. He says, the city of my father's sepulchres, it lies waste, and the gates are consumed with fire. Okay, now, the verses 4 to 8 comes the second question of the king. The first question is, why are you sad? Okay, now we got past that. The king relaxes. He realizes there's nothing going on against him. And he says, so what are you requesting? What is your request? Do you know there are times and opportunities in life where we could say the Lord draws near to us in a special way and he gives us an opportunity to make a request? You better be ready. A lot of times our our prayer requests are too general, we pray. Oh, Lord, bless so-and-so and and bless so-and-so. And And what is your request? Oh, just bless everybody. (laughs) Say something specific. Don't just say, we have a tract about that in Spanish teaching people how to pray. It's called, Señor, bendice a Miguel. (laughs) Bendice a Miguel. And then he realized, if people are praying that way for me, Lord, bless uh, Miguel. He said, if people are praying that way for me, I don't like that. I want them to, to pray for... For the Lord to help me with my job, I want Uh, want them to pray for him to help me with my family, for my own spiritual growth. And he started thinking about all the requests he'd like for people to pray for him. And he said, just pray, Lord bless Miguel, that's not enough. Nehemiah's been praying, and the king says, so, what do you make requests for? What is the first thing he does? Well, he doesn't get out a little piece of paper. (laughs) Well, let's see, I do have a few things here. The first thing he does... He says, I prayed to the God of heaven. That's spontaneous prayer. That's what we call that arrow prayer or that flare prayer. It just goes up instantly. He didn't stop and get down on his knees there and say, excuse me a minute, your majesty. You know, and Heavenly Father, we just went and he'd go into his own little prayer meeting there. And it wasn't that. He prayed and you can pray on your feet and you can pray in your mind and you can pray in an instant of time. This was a man we know who prayed because he's standing before the king, the greatest king on the earth. And that day he's standing right there looking at him at the throne and he's thinking about God in heaven. He's praying. He wouldn't have been able to do that if he wasn't a man who cultivated the practice of prayer. And sometimes we think of prayer too late. In the 107th Psalm, you read that Psalm and you see this happened to them and that happened to them and they were lost and they wandered in the desert and they didn't have anything to eat or to drink. And it says, so many times you read that Psalm later, 107, you'll see it says, Then they cried unto the Lord in their misery. So how come they didn't do it before? And they were in slavery and enclosed in prisons with iron bars. Then they prayed unto the Lord. They became sick and their soul drew near to death. Then they prayed unto the Lord. How come they didn't do it before? There is a such thing as preventive prayer. Lead us not into temptation. It's prayer beforehand. Deliver us from evil. And there is this prayer, the practice of prayer, the daily prayer, and the spontaneous prayer in his mind. And you can do this at work. You can do this in the home. You can do this in your car. And you better pray as you drive and then drive as you pray. It's no good to pray for safety driving and then to get in there and act like one of the, uh, what do they call those things, the mutant ninja turtles (laughs) I can't remember what they're called. I am dating myself now. Anyway, some monster behind the wheel. Pray as you go and go as you pray. Nehemiah was a man of prayer. And so he prayed to the God of heaven. That was an instantaneous prayer. Very short, to the point, and then he spoke to the king. He didn't keep the king waiting. Notice his answer. If it pleased the king, and if thy servant hath found favor in thy sight, that thou wouldst send me unto Judah to the city of my father's sepulchres, that I may build it. He didn't say, I'd like to go and encourage them. He didn't say, I'd like to send them some money. He didn't say, organize a committee to study the problem. Boy, Americans are great at that. We committee things to death. Do the work. Walls are not built by committees. Cities are not built by committees. Churches are not built by committees. Disciples are not made by committees. Souls are not won by committees. You've got to roll up your sleeves and go to work. Not the talk, but the action. He says, send me to build it. He's willing to go. I think about Nehemiah in this sense, how he reminds me of the Lord who looked down from heaven upon our pitiful estate and was willing to come down here himself to save us, not to stay in heaven and all the glory of heaven and the praise of the angels and that wonderful holy city and to come down here to this place, what we heard about this morning from Brother Jim in the mire and the muck, to be able to lead us back up, to take us back up one day as Brother Brad shared with him in that wonderful place in heaven. But he had to come down. And if Nehemiah is going to help the people, he has to go there to help them. And So he says, send me, send me to the city of my father's sepulchers that I may build it. This is very important. This might appear to you to only be a passing detail in an otherwise unknown story from the Old Testament. This is very important. Come with me to the book of Daniel, chapter 9. Daniel, chapter 9. I'm glad to know that in this church I won't have to explain this too much because you're well taught on prophecy, but I want to remind you of what it says here in Daniel 9. In Daniel 9, 24 to 26, we have the the explanation of what's called the 70 weeks of prophecy. Uh, The week is really a word that means seven, 70 sevens. It could be seven days, seven years, seven whatever. It's a a group of seven. Seven days is a week. So they, heptad, they translated it, weeks here. But it's seventy sevens. verse 24, are determined upon thy people and upon the holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end to sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision, the prophecy, to anoint the most holy Know, therefore, and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the prince, shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks, okay? The street shall be built again, and the wall even in troublesome times. After threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood unto the end of the war, desolations are determined. Well, these 70 weeks are 70 groups of years. We're not talking about 70 days. We're not talking about 77s that way. We're talking about years. And here we see what's happening. There is a date set before that prophetic clock of Daniel's that the 70 weeks can be put into motion. Seventy weeks are going to go by, and when the 70th week has gone by, eternal righteousness is going to be established on this earth. Sixty-nine weeks have gone by. When Messiah the Prince came, when the Lord Jesus came and was cut off, when he was crucified on Calvary's mountain, the clock stopped with one week left to go. One week. One group of seven, one group of seven years left to go. How many years are in the great tribulation that's coming? Seven years. That clock is sitting there waiting to start to go through the last seven years. It hasn't started yet and it won't start. But until something is taken out of the way, should I say someone is taken out of the way. When the church is gone off of this earth, then the Lord's dealings revert to Israel. And those seven years marched by. And you know the story because you've studied Revelation many times. But all of this, without dwelling on that any longer, all of this depends on the starting date. And we're told that when the command goes out to build the city, that from then, from that point, you start counting the weeks. Well, here's, here it is. Send me to build the city, he says. And the king said to me, verse 6... The queen also sitting by him. For how long shall thy journey be? And when wilt thou return? So it pleased the king to send me. He's got the royal command. It pleased the king to send me. So I set him a time. I didn't say, oh, well, like we say in Spain, más o menos, aproximadamente, more or less about, I don't know, a few years, Whatever. Whatever is a great American word. We don't have that one in Spain. There's no way to say it. We say más o menos" over there. I set him a time. What time did he set him? Well, you have it later on in the book. Twelve years. He spent twelve years there. He governed. He built the city and he governed. He stayed for twelve years and then he returned. But to find that date, that Number 12, when he went back, you got to keep reading. It doesn't come up here in this chapter. I set him a time. Now, when he sets him a time, this means this is not an open-ended arrangement. You know, like if you have a project at work, it has a deadline. If you have homework to do, you got to turn it in. You can't just keep putting it off and putting it off. And so he set him a time. That means I'm limiting myself. By this time it will be done. And not only that was it done, but he had time to stay there and govern and enjoy the city whose wall he had rebuilt. Send me, he says, that I may build it. Now, Nehemiah, he's not having delusions of grandeur. He doesn't think he's going to build the city all by himself. When he says that I may build it, it doesn't mean that he's going to be out there like a personal fury putting up all the stones himself and everybody else watching. He's going to be in charge of building it. And he's going to work at the building it. But he knows it's going to take more people than Nehemiah to do it. And remember, in those other returns, there were three returns from captivity. The first one under Zerubbabel, you know, where he had 20, some, some people say as many as 40,000 people go back with him. But when Ezra went back, the second return, he only had about 1,700 people with him. And when Nehemiah went back, he had an escort from the soldiers of the king. Apparently there was no one else who went with him. It pleased the king, I set him a time, verse 7, I said to the king, if it pleased the king, let letters be given me to the governors beyond the river that they may convey me over till I come to Judah. Why did he do this? Why did he ask for a letter? And then down in verse 8 he asked for another letter, the keeper of the king's forest, to get the lumber, you know, to build the gates and, and all the things they needed, you know, to, to put up the pulleys, to lift the stones, All of that. Well, by now, since the days of Zerubbabel, and then later, the days of the rebuilding of the temple with Haggai and Zechariah, the prophets, that was finished in the year 516. This is 445. But by now, Nehemiah knows that there are a lot of enemies. He said in in chapter 1, he says, we're in reproach. And here he says it. We're in reproach. People despise us. They look down on us. We have enemies. The wall hasn't been built, but he also knew history. He knew that those people back in the land of Israel, the enemies had written letters to the kings of Persia warning them not to let the Jews rebuild the city. And they had actually stopped construction, first on the temple, and and then when they tried without authorization to go on and build the city way back then, they stopped them on that. So he said, I need the king's permission to build the city. I need the king's permission for all the governors around. I want a letter so I can show it to them and say, look, the king says I can go and do this. It's like saying, back off. I, I have authorization for all the materials I need to build this. So he's thinking, look at, at how he presents his request to the king. He had four or five months to think about this. He didn't just stand up there with his hands in his pocket, rumbling around with his keys and his chains and trying to think off the top of his head, let's see what I might need. Uh, Could I have a horse? And uh, this man had it all thought out. That's planning ahead. I tell you sometimes the way we do the Lord's work, and I'm not speaking of anybody in particular, but when you've been around the world and seen how things are done, if we serve the Lord... The way, or if we ran our businesses, let me say it this way if we ran our businesses the way we serve the Lord, a lot of businesses would be broken, bankrupt, and ruined. A lot of people are a lot more diligent about their personal finances, their plans, their goals for their life, their financial goals, their career goals, and they work at it and they make the sacrifices. But then when it comes to Christianity, when it comes to the church, oh, whatever. And if I feel like it, and if I don't feel like it, how long are you going to keep a job if you try to work that way? This is a man who thought when he prayed. Those months that he was praying, he was thinking. Those months that he was praying, he was planning. Because planning is not carnal. Planning done with prayer and guided by the Holy Spirit is a very spiritual thing. And this is what he is doing. So he comes here to the king and he presents him his request. And I'm, by the way, I'm going to need some letters, he says. And he even got an escort, didn't he? He says in verse 8 at the end, And the king granted me according to the good hand of my God upon me. Nehemiah is a man who has it all in perspective. He has to ask the king for permission. That's human authority. He he respects that, and he looks for that permission. But he knows that he's going to get it because Proverbs 22, 1 says, The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord as the rivers of water. He turns it whithersoever he will. I went with a man one time in the Canary Islands who was the man in charge of the distribution of the water for irrigation to all the different lands up there. And he was an elder in an assembly there. And um, it came a certain hour, and he said, I've got to go change the water. Do you want to go with me? And I said, sure. So I rode along in his Land Rover. He rode up to a spot that had uh, huge fences, chain leaking, and barbed wire fences around it. And he got his keys out, and he opened it up, and he went in. And all these canals going out from that spot to all different places on the island, all, all the wells of water coming up and being pumped up through this spot, and he closed down some of the canals with the levers, and he opened up others and sent the water off in another direction. That was the man who controlled the flowing of the water, and I thought of this first. The heart of the Lord, or the heart of the king, is in the hand of the Lord like the rivers of water. He turns it whichever way he wants to. Who controls that? Can the Lord dispose people's hearts and minds favorably? Can he prepare things and convince people and persuade people when we can? not You better believe he can, because we have a saying, a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. He has to be persuaded by the Lord. There's a spiritual work that has to be done. And for you and I to see that work done, we have to get on our knees and pray. And he'd done his praying. And so he asked, but when he gets the answer, he says, well, the king gave me permission, but the king gave me permission because never forget to give God the glory because of the good hand of the Lord upon me. That's why the king gave me permission. The good hand of my God upon me. So he says, then I came. No stories about the trip. Very simple. Verses 9 and 10. His travel and the reaction. You see his travel in verse 9. He says, the king sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. Apparently, those are the only ones who went with him. There's no names of any other Jews who traveled with him who decided, we want to return and help build the wall. We want to return and help build the city. The numbers in the re- three returns keep going down until you, when you get to Nehemiah, it's Nehemiah by himself with a military escort and the letters from the king. What does that say about all of the people that stayed behind and didn't want to get involved? There are places in this country and there are plenty of places in other countries of the world that to this day have no Christian testimony And sometimes it's just because people don't want to get involved. They're happy to attend, but they don't want to get involved. That's why we read when the Lord talks to the disciples and he says, The harvest is plenteous, but the laborers are few. The laborers, not the attenders, not the bench warmers, not the observers, and the armchair critics, but the laborers are few. And when you're out there seeing the condition of the world and the great need for the gospel and you see these uh, super churches, you know, with 5, 10, 15,000 people in them and you you say, what is this? What what are they producing? Where are the laborers going out? We have entire provinces with nothing in them. You wonder if people are just happy being entertained. When he traveled, unfortunately, he didn't have any Jewish companions. But when he arrived, he had all of those people there who were waiting and who needed his help. Unfortunately, in verse 10, we're introduced to two of the three, uh, I'm not going to say the three stooges. I said it anyway, saying I'm not going to say it. These are the three troublemakers. And wherever there's a work of God to be done, I want you to know wherever there's a work of God to be done, there's always somebody there to criticize it and laugh at it and tear it down and go around nin nin, nin, behind the scenes and try to pull people away and frighten people and discourage people and cause trouble. And here's two of the three right here. What is their problem? What is their problem? It says it grieved them exceedingly. What is that? Well, that's not like saying, well, they just didn't like it. It's like they were really bent out of shape. They were really worked up about this. It bothered, it gave them indigestion. It it, it gave them a, well, they already had a bad attitude. What can I say? It It made them have a fit that someone would come and seek the the welfare of the children of the Lord. Sambalat he's a Haranite. Those people originally came from the area of Syria or Assyria in those days. But you'll remember that when the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom, the ten northern tribes of Israel, when they conquered those, they brought in people from their country, some of whom were people who had been captured from other countries, They brought them in and they uh, colonized, let's say, the north of Israel with these people from other countries. People who, it says, they um, worshipped Jehovah and served their own gods. They brought in all their idols and all of their mythology and all of this with them, and they just added uh, the God of the Jews to that. Well, Sambalat comes from that group. We would call them the Samaritans, and they're the forerunners in some ways of the people who live there now and say that land belongs to them, and they call themselves Palestinians. I'm probably going to offend someone saying this, but I'm going to tell you that the Palestinian is a name that the Romans gave to aggravate the Jews. Because Palestinian in Latin comes from the word Philistine, Palestine, and they named it when they conquered it in order to humiliate the Jews. Instead of calling it Judea, they called it Philistea, which comes out Palestine in English. That land belongs to the Jews. That doesn't mean we approve of everything Israel does, no matter what, but it does mean this, we recognize that God doesn't go back on his promises. He made a promise to Abraham and to his descendants, and when he gave them that land, he used this word, read my lips, he used this word, forever, forever. So Israel has a future, and that land belongs to him, to them. But way back in Nehemiah's time, there were people squatting on the land, people who'd come in from other countries like these today, come in and settle there and decided that that land now belonged to them and tried to make themselves a nation and and have their own representation. Well, they're squatting on somebody else's land. Sambalat was one of those. Tobiah's an Ammonite. The Ammonites and the Moabites come from who? Lot. Thank you. Lots, lot's incestuous relationship with his daughters. They got him drunk. They didn't have, a, they didn't have husbands because they, they died in Sodom or, or they didn't have them. And so they, they said, well, now how are we going to have descendants? They got their father drunk. They had relations with him. And each one had a son. And there's the, there they are, the Moabites and the Ammonites come from that, and they were perpetual enemies of Israel. Nobody can afflict you like a family member, like a relative. And that's, and that's exactly what was happening in this case. So here they are, Sambalat and Tobiah, and what is their problem? Their problem is they don't want anyone to help Israel. Does that sound familiar? They don't want anyone to help Israel. But now let's bring it over to where we are. There are people today who are aggravated and bothered any time anybody tries to help build up the church. They are church critics. They are church splitters. They are church destroyers. They don't know how to build, and they don't want anybody else to do it either. They're grieved, he says, because someone came to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. Let me ask you a question. Do you like to see God's people suffer? There are some people who do. Do you like to cause or see churches have trouble? Families have trouble? Churches have trouble? Christians have trouble? Some people do. sambalad and Tobiah were that way. They were happy as long as Israel was miserable. And when they, apparently, they heard through their connections, you know, as Nehemiah came and showed his letter to the different governors as he came along, word got out. Because he hasn't talked yet to the people, the Jews there in Jerusalem. He hasn't said anything. But the word is out. Sambalad and Tobiah heard about it. And they said, Ah, we heard through the grapevine this fellow's coming. He's got authorization to get materials and to build the wall. Bad news. They don't like it. So here are the enemies, and they're going to cause more than one problem as we go along. Come with me to verses 11 to 16. And we have the private analysis of Nehemiah. Now remember, Nehemiah has traveled all this way. He spoke to the king. He got permission, he traveled, he's there, he's reached his destination, but he hasn't said anything yet about what he's doing there. Sam, Vlad, and Dewey heard it through the grapevine. But Nehemiah hasn't opened his mouth yet. He's a wise man. Why? Because when he was back in the palace, they came and told him what the conditions were there. He believed them, and it was a faithful report, but now before he speaks to the people that are living there in those conditions, what does he need to do? He needs to get down there and see what it's really like for himself. And so this is exactly what's going to happen in these verses. He said, I was there three days, probably first of all resting from his trip. Maybe, maybe he had letters from the Jews in captivity they sent. We don't know what he was doing those three days. But it says he went out in the night, verse 12, and some few men with him. He chose those who were going to go with him. Probably people who knew the city. What there was of it. The ruins of the city. He took them with him. He said, I didn't tell any man what my God had put into my heart. Now I like that expression because that tells us that what this was is not just a personal project of Nehemiah. This was something that God had put into his heart. This was a spiritual burden that he had For a city where God had from olden times said, I'm going to put my name in this city and dwell there. And that's why Nehemiah had it in his heart. Remember the Jews in Psalm 137 and Psalm 122. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand be paralyzed. This is how he feels. And so he's asked the Lord to, to allow him to go and to build this city. The Lord put it on his heart. He says, that there was no animal, no beast with me except the one I rode. And he rode out until he got to the place where there were so many stones down and piled up that he couldn't pass from there any further. But he tells you where he went. Verse 13, he gives you the list. Verse 14, he gives you the list. He got to the place where at the end of verse 14 he couldn't pass by because of the rubble. And then he says in verse 15, I went up in the night by the brook and viewed the wall and turned back and entered by the gate of the valley and so returned. Let me say this about all of that. There are a lot of times when a spiritual work is being done that there are few people who are working while everybody else is sleeping. Everybody else is home asleep. Nehemiah is out. He didn't do this in the daytime because he didn't yet want to call attention to what his plan was, what he was going to do. He wants to see it for himself, and then he's going to speak to the people. But until he can do that, as we say in Spanish, he doesn't say anything. He's waiting. So he's out here examining at night. I can tell you that there are men and women who serve the Lord who take care of people, who watch over people, who minister to people, who spend nights praying when other people are asleep. And sometimes the sleepers are so quick to criticize. Samuel, you know one time in the history of Samuel, when he had to go out that day and speak to King Saul, and he had to say, the Lord has rejected you. He's torn the kingdom from you. He had to confront him because he didn't do what the Lord told him to do. What does it say? If you read that passage in 1 Samuel, you'll see it. The night before when the Lord told him he was going to have to go and do that, it says he wept and prayed before the Lord all night. Why does they tell us this? Because you need to know it and I need to know it. We see Samuel when he's standing there and he's putting down the king. He's putting him in his place. He's humbling him. It's a confrontation. And Samuel looks like a hard man. He looks like a mean man. He looks like a stern man, but you didn't see what happened that night. Yeah, he had to do the dirty work. Somebody's got to do it. But he's down there at night on his knees crying and praying when everybody else is asleep, the people who are so quick to criticize him. And that's often the way it is with the elders in an assembly. Behind the scenes, when everybody else is asleep, they're praying. They're keeping watch over the flock. And it's a job you take home with you. It doesn't have business hours. You already know that. So here's Nehemiah out at night doing his homework. He's got to see it for himself. He's got to count the cost of what it's going to take to build those walls up. And he's got to speak with firsthand knowledge when he speaks to the people who live there. And so this is what he's doing. Okay, we come down to verses 17 through 20, and he speaks out finally. He speaks out. Then, you see that, verse 17, Then I said to them, Not before. He's been there three days. He knows when to speak and when to hold his peace, when to hold his tongue. He speaks at the right time. Then I said to them, you see the distress that you are in. Is that what it says? Are you sure? You see the distress that you are in. Ah, what's the difference? He could have said, well, I just got here and I've looked it over and you guys are in a real mess. How did he pray back in chapter 1? We have sinned. I and my father's house. He hadn't done any of that. He didn't cause the destruction of Jerusalem. He didn't cause the deportation. He didn't cause their prolongation and captivity. It wasn't his fault. He took what we call, uh, the old brethren used to call it, eating the sin offering. He took it, he made it as if it were his own. He confessed it. He confessed the sins of the people and he took his place with them. He identified himself with them and he continues to do that when he reaches them in chapter two. He says, we are in distress. He's one of them. He's not talking down to them. He's one of them, but he's pointing out the problem because brother and sister, you can't solve the problems until you're willing to recognize what they are. You can't just cover it over. One brother in one place, he said, now there's a lot of empty seats and very few people. And he said, you see all these empty seats? Turn around and look at them. as They were all sitting up at the front in one area So they didn't, at the meeting so they didn't have to see all the empty seats. He said, turn around and look at all these empty seats. Why do we have all these empty seats? We're just like a little covey of quail here in one corner of this building. What's going on? Look at all those tracks that have been for years in that rack of tracks back there that nobody ever gives out. He's calling attention to it. We need to do something. We need to face the problem and pray to the Lord and ask Him to help us. And then we need to do this and get to work. And so this is what He's doing. He's preparing them. He says, We are in distress. You see it. He's, he's putting it in front of them. Look at it. Jerusalem is waste. The gates are burned. And then He says, Come. Let us build the wall. He doesn't say, the king sent me to tell you, you have permission to build the wall. He said, let us do it. He's one of them. Build the wall and he's going to be right in there with him. And that's the best way to do work. Not to tell somebody else what they need to do, but to roll up your sleeves and get in there and do it with them. Come, let us build up the wall of Jerusalem that we may be no more a reproach. As long as that wall was down which was protection and separation and testimony to the presence of the city, as long as that wall was down and ruined, the people scorned them and laughed at them. They looked down at them, these pathetic Jews. What can they do? Build the wall and end the reproach, he says. That's what we're going to do. And then, then he told them the second part of his message, verse 18, I told them about the good hand of God upon me. He told him about how God had blessed him and opened the way. And he told him about the words of the king. Maybe he showed him the letter. We have permission. All those other times when they tricked the king and the enemy sent letters and told the king to stop the work, that ain't going to happen this time. I got the letters ahead of time. We're going to build the wall. The Lord has opened the door for us. And the people now are encouraged, it says here in this verse 18. They said. Not Nehemiah. They said, let us rise up and build the wall. And that's what you want. There comes a time when you have to stop sitting around and feeling sorry for yourself and thinking that the work is too great and that you'll never get it back to where it was before. And you've got to say, get up and do the work. Get up and do the work. Don't sit there and feel sorry for yourself and don't try to stone the devil's dogs, throw stones at the devil's dogs. Just do the work. That's the answer. That's the way to solve the problem. And so the people are excited about that. But. Verse 19. But. Sambalat. The Horonite. Tobiah. The servant. And and the Ammonite. And now. Jeshim. The Arabian. He's the descendants of Ishmael. Who also have always caused trouble for the children of Israel. Now the three of them are together. Now you know who they are. They heard it and they laughed us to scorn. Oh, they're going to build the wall. Is that that ever ridiculous? They're going to build the wall. What is this you're going to do? What are you going to do? you Are going to rebel against the king? That was their old lie that they told in previous decades when they wrote letters to the Persian kings and said, don't let them build the wall. They're going to build up the city and then they're going to create a rebellion and establish their own kingdom. And they frightened the king that this was going to happen. And so he stopped them. He forbade them to build. Well, you're going to rebel? That dog don't hunt anymore. Verse 20, then I answered them. Because you not only have to speak to exhort the people and help them and encourage the people, you also have to answer the enemies. And what did he say to them? Well, he spoke about God. He didn't say the king will help us. He said the God of heaven, he will prosper us. If you do God's work, he'll do that. If you do God's work in God's way, you can count on God's help. you still got to do the work. God doesn't lay the bricks. God doesn't pile up the stones. God makes the stones. You've got to pile them up and put mortar on them. He says, God will prosper us. Therefore, we, his servants, will build. So you have sovereignty, the sovereignty of God. He will prosper us. But you have human responsibility. We will build. We're going to do our part. We're going to do the labor. Rise up and build. But you, he says to Sambalat and Tobiah and Jeshim, he says, you have no portion or right or memorial in Jerusalem. You're out of the herd. You're not doing anything here. He stared them down and he stood them down. That's enough trouble. And he's, he's putting them on notice right here that nothing more will they have to do with it. Well, now in the next session, when we get to Chapter 3, we're going to see, Chapter 3 is really fast. I'm just going to give you a two-minute overview of it here. We'll see what happened when they started to build. First of all, he excluded the people who were only going to cause trouble. You're out. You're not building this wall with us. This is not for you. This is for us. And then the people began to build. They They get in their places around the wall and they start to build. They're not all of the people working on one spot on the wall, and then they all move to another spot, and then they all move to another spot. What are they doing here? There's distribution. They're distributed, and they're laboring all of them at the same time. So if you looked at it with time-lapse photography, you would see the whole wall of the city going up a little at the time, all around, because they're all out there working, and this is what the Lord wants from us. Not a few people doing all of the work. Someone said Christianity is like one of those football games where you have uh, 22 people on the field in desperate need of rest and 22,000 people in the stands in desperate need of exercise. <laughs> yeah. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the, uh, chapter 12, the Lord tells us that He's given us each a gift for the common good to work. And you have to ask yourself in the work of the Lord here? in San Ramon, what is your part? Attending services is not a part. It's good. I'm glad you're here. But what is your part? Who can you encourage? Who can you help? What is there for you to do? There's something for you to do because every part in my body has a function and every part in your body has a function and every part in the Lord's body has a function and all of these people here had a function except the warts, in verse 5, the nobles of Tekoa, they're the warts. Warts don't do anything. They wouldn't do the work. We have a great work before us. You see, when there's a great work to do, it all divides up, doesn't it, into different parts. The people who help and work and the people who stand on the side and criticize and try to tear it down. May the Lord help us to know where we fit into his work And to be workers for him. To build up the testimony of the Lord. And to encourage and to help people who are suffering and in difficulties. We would be like Nehemiah. Be willing to give of ourselves and what we have to help them. And to see the Lord's work go forward. Let's pray. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that we could be together this morning. And that we could look into your word. We could see from Nehemiah. Things that we need for our lives. And we pray that you would deliver us from being in any way at all like or having any kind of fellowship with people who want to detract from the Lord's work. Help us to be encouragers and helpers. Guide us by your Holy Spirit in our plans and our activities so that we'll all be directed by you. It will be the good hand of our God upon us, Lord. Open doors of opportunity and make it possible for the church to continue to grow We pray the same for our families. We pray the same for those friends around us who don't know you, That our testimony to them. We pray that you would help us to make progress in explaining to them the wonderful good news of the gospel. And they also might come to be laborers with us in the great work of God. For we ask it in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.